This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Should Catholics promote democracy? That's the question posed by John McGreevy, longtime Commonweal contributor and the new provost of the University of Notre Dame, in a new article for the July-August issue of the magazine. John talks with me about the piece, which examines the concept of Catholic democracy in mid-20th century Europe and its relevance for our own democratic crisis here in the 21st century United States. Our conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. John McGreevy, thanks for being with us on the Commonweal Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Dominic. So your new book is Catholicism, a global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what made you want to embark on such an undertaking and why you set these particular parameters, why the French Revolution at one end and Francis at the other. Yeah, two reasons, really. Uh, The first is scholarly in the sense that much to my shock, and I've been in the history business now for a long time, the history of modern Catholicism has become a kind of hot subfield. And there are a lot of historians working from various traditions and in various geographical areas from China to the Middle East to Europe, working on the history of Catholicism. I think some of it spurs from the fact that Catholicism is such a global institution and people are interested now in in global institutions in a way they weren't a generation ago. And some of it also spurs from just the sense that religion and culture is maybe a little bit more important than historians of the 19th and 20th century, at least, gave it credit for. And so anyway, there's a lot of historians working on it. And I thought it'd be nice if someone could kind of summarize and deepen and extend that literature for a general audience. And so I'm publishing it with Norton, which is a New York publisher and straddles the line between scholarly and general interest. And the hope is to reach an audience and give a sophisticated reading of what all these scholars, most of whom are working in their particular area, have said about Catholicism. Mm. So that's one reason, you know, to kind of give the educated lay person a, a smart sense of what's happened in the most global and multicultural institution in the world over the last two centuries. Mm, mm. Another reason is more personal. I realize I've spent almost my whole life either studying in, teaching at, writing about, or administering. I'm a university administrator now, as well as a historian, Catholic institutions, including I've been associated with Conwell. <laughs> and about once a day, somebody comes up to me and says, how did we end up here? You know, I mean, mm. it's been such a strange trip, maybe especially the last couple of decades. And so there's a sense in which I hope that the book speaks not just to historians, but to Catholics too, and and gives them a smart, savvy, nonpartisan, but thoughtful read of the tumultuous last 200 years. And so you've uh, intimated that you've been at this a long time, being a historian. I'm wondering if there was a particular period or personality or event or fact in this 200 plus year history that you think deserves more attention than it, than it generally gets. You mentioned in your last question, you know, why I began at the French Revolution? I didn't really answer that. And, mm-hmm. and that's one very important event in the history of Catholicism. If the French Revolution hadn't occurred when it did with the violence that it did with, in the end, the anti-Christian, anti-Catholic emphases that it did, the history of Catholicism would have been quite different. Catholicism was reinvented in the 19th century. And 
what we often take to be time immemorial Catholic customs, such as the Pope selects bishops, such as parishes are strictly geographical, such as the Pope might even be infallible. Those traditions were invented in a certain sense in the 19th century because of the disruption, the disarray caused by the French Revolution, and there were paths not taken. So that's one event. I'll I'll mention two more. I knew about the Second Vatican Council, but this book really prompted me to read pretty deeply into the scholarly literature on the Second Vatican Council. And it's an unbelievable event. It's certainly the most important religious event of the 20th century. And the fact that they were able to gather 2,500 bishops and male heads of religious orders and meet for three, you know, the world's longest meeting, John O'Malley calls it, three years in Rome, 10, you know, thousands of people, that they're able to come to the rather sophisticated, interesting conclusions that they did about the future of the church and the church in the world. It really is amazing. I'm not the kind of person who says the Holy Spirit's acting in all of our lives at any particular moment, but it's extraordinary. And so that's another event that really jumped out at me was I got, began to write the book. And I would say the third was, and I didn't quite expect this, was decolonization. And what an important impact that had on modern Catholicism. And one of the themes of the book is that in 1900, two-thirds of the world's Catholics lived in Europe. Now, two-thirds of the world's Catholics live in the global South. Most Catholics today in 2022 are people of color living in the global South. And that world, which we're at Conwheel, at Notre Dame, at other places, just getting a hold of, that world is in part a function of decolonization. It's, it's a function of other things too, but all of these countries becoming independent from European empires, developing a stronger sense of indigenous traditions within Catholicism, developing vibrant missionary cultures. Some of that happened even before decolonization, much before. But boy, that really Mm. shaped and is shaping now the history of the church. I didn't quite expect to see that so vividly. Mm. In a similar line of questioning, speak of events and huge transformations across the 200 years, but was there a particular figure whom you re-encountered in your research and who might have struck you as newly interesting or relevant for readers today or who might have surprised you in some way? I will say my wife has not read everything I've written and she would say this is the most readable thing though I've ever written in part because there's a lot of storytelling. And so I did spend a lot of time thinking about stories I could tell, individual lives that were meaningful. And I, I won't bore your listeners with all of them. But the range is, to my mind, it ended up being one of the really fun things of the book. There's a guy named Ma Bang, who's a Chinese Catholic statesman. Edith Stein, the <clears throat> German-Jewish Catholic philosopher who's killed at Auschwitz. A whole range of people. If I had to choose one individual in, in the kind of modern Catholic world who's both brave and tragic, it might be John Paul II. Mm-hmm. I write a decent amount about him. And his courage in confronting communism, the pivotal role he played in fostering a Catholic appreciation for and cultivation of democracy and human rights. That's all on the one hand. But then I think the tragic role he played in the sexual abuse crisis and his maybe even inability to confront it, his ties to particular Catholic structures, which were not reformed at the Second Vatican Council, and that now 
we can see more clearly enabled the sexual abuse crisis. What a complicated, interesting yeah. figure he is. He's had, we've had the first generation of biographies of him and they're smart and intelligent biographies. You know, eventually the archives are going to open. We're going to have another generation of biographies that treat kind of both sides of his complicated legacy. We'll have more of my conversation with John McGreevy in a minute. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, the Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theological Studies, with a specialization in Franciscan theology. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. John, I wonder if we could talk a little bit now about the section of your book that we're featuring in our July-August issue, which we headlined, Natural Enemies No More. And you begin this, this section by asking, should Catholics promote democracy? A question that up through the first half of the 20th century did not, as you say, have an easy answer. So I'm wondering if you could maybe sketch out the context a bit mm-hmm. for why this was the case at the time. Yeah, this is an, a real interest of mine, is this question of the relationship between Catholicism and democracy. And mass democratic systems actually start with the French Revolution. That's one reason I began the book there. And they, through winding paths, expand pretty dramatically in the 19th century. In the early 19th century, and people don't know this, and I wanted to stress it in the book, Catholics are among the most fervent advocates of democracy, especially in Spain and Latin America. And this particular strain of Catholicism that I call, and other historians have called Reform Catholicism, sees democratic decision-making, especially by, I should add, by male wealthy elites. That's really mm-hmm. the extent of the decision, democratic decision-making as important. And they also want to see democratic decision-making within the church. And it's a period of lots of synodal activity and interest in mm-hmm. developing, again, male elite voices within the church. The ultramontane revolution of the 19th century that in some ways culminates with Vatican I and the Declaration of Papal Infallibility really weakens that theoretical link between Catholicism and democracy. We do have big Catholic political parties, the most famous of which is the Center Party in Germany, but we don't have much theoretical discussion of, well, what should Catholics really think about democracy? And in fact, Up through the 20th century, most of that thinking is negative. Democracy is the rule of the mob. It's majority rule. We have timeless truths. And we, the whole idea of bargaining and compromise and shifting parliamentary majorities was seen as in some ways almost inimical for many Catholics to a focus on the truth, to the philosophy that was sometimes called neo-Thomism. 
And that's the world and the kind of high point of the story in the excerpt in Conwell is, is this guy, Jacques Maritain, who I think is the most important Catholic intellectual of the mid-20th century. Maritain wanted to change that. He wanted to convince Catholics that actually democracy was resonant with the gospel and that Catholics should support, within reason, democratic governments. And that was really a lonely position. In the 1930s, if you looked around the world, you'd say, well, Catholics in the United States or Australia or England, they're perfectly content with democratic politics. And that was true. But in Austria and Portugal and Brazil and Argentina, Catholics are part of authoritarian regimes. And they said, that's part of being a good Catholic is to have more order and hierarchy. And Maritain was fighting against that. And he's a minority in the 1930s, but the events of the Second World War and then the Cold War really push his views forward. And then I talk about how it culminates at the Second Vatican Council in 1965 with Gaudium Spes, the last document of the council, which really does endorse democracy as a political system. And Maritain has a direct influence there. Mm-hmm. And so then you- finally, in the period for the next two or three decades, Catholics, instead of being a threat to democracy, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in Poland and South Korea, certainly, but also in other parts of Uganda and other parts of the world, Catholics become advocates mm-hmm. for democracy and human rights. And that's an almost astonishing twist in the story. If you think about the 1930s, when Catholics are very often tied to fascist or at least authoritarian governments, and in the 1970s in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, and in East Asia, they're often the leaders of democratic movements. And Maritain and the Second Vatican Council had a lot to do with that. Yeah, picking up on that, you actually have that interesting phrase in the piece where you say, by the second half of the 20th century, Catholics actually became democracy's guarantors. Then you pivot and say, now these triumphs seem as if from another world. And the response of U.S. Catholics to our own democratic crises, you say, has been muted as the threat to democracy from the populist right is increasing. So what do you think is going on here? Why have American Catholics... I say of all people, American Catholics become suspicious of or even hostile to democracy. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say American Catholics are hostile to democracy, but but I will say I've been sobered by the almost mute response of many Catholics to what I think is a democratic crisis. We have a deeply polarized society. We have a president who tried to overthrow the fairly elected government in a coup, as we learn every day. And I I don't think the Keller response has been commensurate to the depth of the crisis that we face. And so you ask yourself why, and I don't have a perfect answer for that. You know, one thing is we're a long distance from the 1930s and that crisis, and maybe people have forgotten, I say, what Maritain taught us. Another dimension is that even on the left, in the heyday of liberation theology, there was a kind of scorn of democracy. You know, we were going to, the liberation theologians at their most extreme, I know this wasn't true of everyone, you know, we're going to revolutionize the economic system. Mm -hmm. And democracy could sometimes, certainly Christian democratic parties could get in the way of that. And I think that was a naive view. Mm -hmm. I think in the U.S., the abortion issue has had a polarizing role. And so if we ask ourselves, why are so many Catholics, even smart you know, leading Catholics unwilling to detach themselves from the Republican Party at this moment or unwilling to publicly condemn President Trump or some leaders. I think abortion issue has come to shape the Catholic relationship to politics in very profound ways that haven't always been helpful. 
when we come to a crisis like this. So that's some of the cluster. And, and what I try and say in the piece is let's just, as a I'll repeat myself, let's not forget what I think actually Maritain taught us was that in the end, the church flourishes. And in the end, the society, Catholics have responsibility to help the society flourish as a democratic polity. And that requires a, a world of bargaining and negotiation, compromise and politics, which often aligns rather messily with a more formal stating of doctrinal truths. So there's no easy answer here. Uh-huh. Yeah, with a few exceptions, I don't think Catholic leaders have registered the urgency of the situation that we're in. Yeah. Might you just take a moment now, John, when you just said, except for a few, there were a few exceptions who were paying attention to this. Would you be able or willing to identify some of them? Yeah. I think Cardinal Supich has had a couple of really good statements. Future Cardinal McElroy has said some nice things. I mean, I think Conwheel has, has done its part, but generally the distaste for the polarization, the sometimes a mocking way people describe political life. I think Catholics have to get over that. Mm. I think we have some responsibility for the political world that we're in and its sustenance. And I'm a little worried we are on the sidelines of what is a fundamental debate about the future of the country right now. So you get to a point in the piece that we're featuring in our July-August issue where you talk about Francis and synodality, and you raise the possibility that the synodal experience in the church could somehow inspire or offer new hopes for the support of democracy and democratic procedures. So what do you see as the connection there? What might the mechanism be, and how realistic do you think this is? (laughs) I don't think it's very realistic. Yeah. (laughs) But I I wanted to end the piece there for this reason. I mentioned that in the early 19th century, and this is one of the benefits, right, of, of studying history and, again, trying to consolidate this exciting literature. In the early 19th century, Catholic reformers saw a real link between voice and representation within the polity and voice and representation within the church. Very explicit. That world went away with the kind of Catholic ultramont revolution of the 19th century. And listen, not everything about that world was great. And so that's just, I'm not mourning it necessarily, but I'm just registering that the link between voice and representation within the church and voice and representation within the polity was made at that point. Now we're in a moment where Francis is really encouraging Catholics, and I think this is fabulous, to think about different forms of voice within the church. Now, he, a synod is not a parliament, a synod is not a legislature, but it is a mechanism, as Francis at least envisions it, for voice and different ways of thinking together about the problems and opportunities faced by the church. I'm not sure how we jump from that to American politics, but boy, do we need institutions in American society that can help bridge the partisan divides that so mark it. I think we are in desperate need of those kinds of institutions. And if we think about our society, the military, I mean, I don't know how many institutions there really are that have that kind of public confidence. Mm. I'm not sure Catholics as institution builders can get there. And of course, the divides within Catholicism are almost as deep as the divides within the society. But boy, wouldn't that be great if through the experience of thinking about voice and representation in the church, Catholics could also make some kind of contribution to the common society that we share. 
So you just mentioned that you've recently begun officially in your new job, which is provost of Notre Dame. And uh, we see a lot of what you describe in your piece playing out today in academia and in student life and in how major public figures with connections to institutions like yours and others are implicated in some of these conversations. And so sort of even just picking up on what you were saying about synodality in some ways and bridging gaps, et cetera. How do you think a place like Notre Dame might be affected by perhaps help influence these shifts in American and American Catholic understanding of democracy? Well, there's no question Notre Dame is, it just as a kind of big research university, is implicated in the challenges faced by society, but also the challenges faced by the church. And the hope is that Notre Dame and other Catholic institutions, not just Notre Dame, can provide some vehicles and forums and opportunities for improving the world and improving the church too. There's a lot of ways at a place like Notre Dame that we're engaged with the church. And my job now, description is to be able to list those and mm. ACE program, sending teachers to low-income Catholic schools, to world-class theology and philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But one way is to help the students who go here and maybe even the wider culture to reflect on the nature of the relationship between the church and society. Another way is to do some of the thinking of the church and the thinking of society. I actually think, especially places like Notre Dame that, you know, are blessed with resources and students who want to come here and all that sort of thing. We have a really big responsibility in a moment of real challenges to make the university community think deeply about it, maybe even profoundly about those challenges. We haven't even begun to talk about the ecological crisis. One of the interesting things I found when I was doing research for the book was how early, actually, Catholic leaders began to talk about the gap between rich and poor and the global north and the global south. And one of the themes in the chapters on decolonization of the book is the, those early discussions. I talk about a woman named Barbara Ward and a French priest who are involved in these discussions and culminates with the phrase integral human development in Populorum Progressio, which is Paul VI's encyclical of 1967. Well, now we're in a world, interestingly, where Francis has become the leading environmentalist on the planet. And he's very explicitly picking up the language of the Second Vatican Council and of Paul VI. And in many ways, he wants to pick up all the threads left dangling by Paul VI's papacy. And so it is a really interesting question how Catholic universities and Catholic institutions can make a contribution to the ecological crisis because we have a vocabulary now that a lot of other institutions and other places don't have. And boy, I see that here in Notre Dame, and I'm sure at other Catholic universities, almost a hunger among students and faculty who you might not expect to use that vocabulary about what is a kind of just environment and how do we link poverty and the environmental crisis in new ways. And so that's one task, I think, for a Catholic university, but also that where we can think, use our own tradition, but actually make a contribution to a wider conversation. John McGreevy, thanks for being with us today. I'm looking forward to reading your book, which your wife describes as readable. And I'm hopeful <laughs> that's a, a blurb on the back cover. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's funny. John McGreevy's article is entitled, Natural Enemies No More, How Rome Finally Embraced Democracy. It's featured in our July-August issue and on our website, 
The article is adapted from John's forthcoming book, which is titled Catholicism, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis, to be published in September by W.W. Norton. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>